Thanks, Lewis. Uh, you might like to grab your Bibles out again uh, and your booklets. I think we're on page 14 tonight, is that right? Page 14? Yes, that's right. Yes. Apologies too to Jess Favetta. Um, I couldn't resist the, uh, putting that bit about the spinach in at the end. <laughs> I succumb to temptation. I repent. <laughs> Mostly. (laughs) Well, about this time last year, uh, August the 9th, people from all across Australia sat down on their couches, they opened their laptops and their iPads, and they failed to fill out the census. Uh, I don't know if you remember it, the census website had a denial of service attack and uh, it had to shut down to avoid a data breach. And it was all a bit of a disaster, really. Um, I have a friend who's reasonably high up in the Australian Bureau of Statistics, and uh, I reckon she aged several years in the space of a few hours. Uh, But they did eventually manage to get the website running again. People did fill out the census. The data has been collated now. And a few weeks ago, the stats were released. Uh, And it shows a bunch of interesting stuff. So, for example... It tells us that the typical Western Australian is a 37-year-old male, but the typical Australian is a 38-year-old female. As it turns out, women have outnumbered men in Australia since 1979. There you go. Well done, girls. You're winning. (laughs) (laughs) The census uh, tells us that the typical Aussie is married with two children. They've completed year 12. They live in a three-bedroom house. Uh, But the typical Western Australian lives in a four-bedroom house. Isn't that amazing? What does that tell you about Western Australians? I'm not sure. Maybe we've got more money or more space or we're just greedier. (laughs) A quarter of Australians were born overseas. Uh, In WA, most of our migrants come from England. But in Queensland, most of them come from New Zealand. In Victoria, most of them come from India. And in New South Wales, most of them come from China. But here's another interesting stat, uh, and a fairly disturbing one. In 1954, less than 1% of Australians ticked the no-religion box on the census. But by 2011, that had jumped to 22%. And by 2016, it was nearly a third of Australians who ticked no-religion on the census. Now, I don't know uh, if that actually signifies a decline in the number of actual Christians or is it just people being more honest? Not sure. But our population has increased by 2 million people in the last five years, yet the number of people identifying as Christian has fallen by a million. Last year, to coincide with the census, uh, McCrindle Research conducted a survey about faith and belief in Australia, and they found that 8% of Australian adults, 8%, that's 1.5 million Australians, don't know a Christian. Not a single Christian. And nearly 3.5% of Australians have never heard of Jesus. Those are not good numbers. Uh, And they're heading in the wrong direction. But having said that, they're still a lot better than many places in the world, aren't they? We heard from Matt before that 
Uh, There's only one Christian to every 200 or more people in Portugal. And in Turkey, it's one to 80,000. Now, if you're convinced, like I am, that one died for all and therefore all died, then we've got to want everyone in Australia, everyone in the world, to know about Jesus. We want to see people no longer living for themselves, but living for the one who died for them. If we love God, we want to see him glorified. If we love our neighbours, we want to see them saved and brought into the kingdom of God's son. How could we not want that for them? So the question is, what are we going to do? Well, we could try giving people what they want. We could sort of tailor things a bit more, uh, do some market research, uh, employ the marketing gurus and work out how we can streamline things so that people will get what they want. So, you know, we can find out if people like 30-minute sermons from the Bible and if they don't, well, then chuck them out. We can give them a 10-minute sort of TED Talk. Um, I don't know if you guys have watched any of the TED Talks, but, you know, there's lots of profound anecdotes, moving stories. Uh, We can tell them about how following Jesus will improve their quality of life, give them better relationships, uh, help their businesses to flourish provide them with a sense of well-being, a nice sort of compliment to give them a well-rounded life, to go alongside their exercise regime and their diet and their friends and their family and their large house in the suburbs. If Bible uh, passages that discuss controversial topics like God's destruction of the Canaanites, selfishness and greed, his wrath at sin, his final judgment and hell, well, if those things make people uncomfortable, we could just leave them out. If they're going to turn people off, why not just push them off to the side? Focus on encouraging, uplifting passages, like Jesus saying, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. And ignore the bit where he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. We could say, oh, well, you know, taking up your cross and following Jesus, you know, well, that might just mean, uh, you know, you, you pray a little more or you read your Bible more regularly instead of what Jesus means, which is open the gas chamber door and follow me. You could get your church or your Christian union to focus on making everything super slick. Uh, so that people feel like it's a really well-oiled machine and they want to come back. Man, this is a really easy place to be. Uh, everyone's got everything working, so you know I don't have to do a thing. That's the critical thing, isn't it? That people feel comfortable, that everything revolves around them. If we're going to turn around this decline in Christianity, if we're going to bring uh, Christianity to people around the world, then we've got to get people through the door, don't we? doesn't matter how, we've just got to get them in. Give them what they want. Now, the Apostle Paul was aware of that option and he knew what people wanted. If you have a look there at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, he tells us what people wanted. 
Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. And we see that several times in the Gospels, don't we? In John chapter 2, verse 18, the Jews say to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? In John chapter 6, verse 30, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? And there are people who are still like that today, aren't there? Several times I've asked people what it would take to convince them that God was real, that Jesus is his son and they should trust him. And I can't count the number of times where they've said, well, you know, if God suddenly appeared and he stood in front of me and he said, here I am, I'm God and Jesus is my son, well, then I'd believe. They demand signs. But then there are others who are like the Greeks, like the Corinthians that Paul's writing to here. And they're not so much interested in signs. What they're interested in, what they find persuasive, is wisdom. And we see a little bit of what Paul means by that in Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, Paul arrives in Athens... And he gets into a debate with a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And Luke tells us, All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. That's what Paul means by wisdom. The Athenian philosophers, they want a good argument to entertain them. A beautiful speech to stimulate their thinking, to make them feel clever a good old philosophical debate before lunch. They want a TED talk. They want to be able to sit around and feel how clever they are, how good they are, how wise they are. They want to be flattered. But Paul fails to deliver. He doesn't do miraculous signs, although he could have. He doesn't present an eloquent argument to keep them entertained, although he could have done that. No, he makes the deliberate choice to reject both of those things. You can see it there in chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. It's not like Paul is trying to be stupid. It's not that he embraces anti-intellectualism or something like that. And he does want to persuade them about Jesus. We saw that last night, didn't we, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. But he's not going to use the persuasive techniques that the speakers of his day use. He's not going to butter up the audience with flattery. He's not going to depict them as the good guys. You know, you're so much better than all the other people out there. He's not going to give them 10 simple life hacks to improve their spirituality. No, Paul doesn't come with wise and persuasive words, 
He doesn't come with miraculous signs. He comes with something different. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. And you think, but why would you do that? Hasn't he done his market research? Doesn't he know his audience? What's what's wrong with him? This is a classic failure of a communicator. Why would you deliberately embrace a strategy that half your audience thinks is weak and the other half thinks is foolish? That's just bad preparation. That's bad planning. How's that going to move people through the door? How's that going to persuade people that Jesus is worth following? Jews demand signs, works of power, to demonstrate that this really is from God. But Paul preaches the cross, and a helpless man nailed to a cross, gasping out his final breath, that's that's not powerful. That's the epitome of weakness. That's not a sign of God's majesty, is it? It's a sign of God's curse. Greeks looked for wisdom, but the cross isn't wise. It's not a rational, logical deduction. I don't know about uh, the other universities, but at UWA you can do units in philosophy on God and the philosophy of religion. That's a good thing, I think, that we should think hard about God and religion. Philosophy can help us to clarify our terms, to be careful about what we mean, to not say silly things in our arguments. But here's the thing. Here's the problem with those units. And in almost every book of philosophy I've ever read, they never mention the cross. Compared to the great philosophical ideas about God, the cross just seems foolish. If you base your philosophy essay on God around Jesus' death, then you're not going to get a very good mark because the cross seems foolish. On Monday night, I showed the drawing carved into the wall of a Roman schoolroom of uh, the man bowing down to this crucified man with the head of a donkey. Alexamenos worships God. Well, that's what the cross looks like to people. It looks weak. It looks foolish. So preaching Christ crucified, well, that sounds like a really bad strategy. That's a really losing way to approach things. But Paul insists, no, it's not. For all its apparent weakness and foolishness, the cross is actually a winning strategy because it's God's strategy. But why would God choose something so perverse, something so counterintuitive? Well, says Paul, he's actually got several reasons. For one thing, he did it to hide. Have a look at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. See, there have been some very wise people throughout history. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. They were towering intellects. There's still so much 
of the way that we think that we owe to them. And yet for all their undoubted genius, those guys never came close to imagining the cross. God and his plans were hidden from them. Sometimes, like I said before, when I've been talking about God with people and I ask them, what would it take for you to believe? They reply, well, if God appeared in front of me, then I'd believe. And you think, well, you know, that seems reasonable. Why doesn't God just appear in all his power and majesty to prove himself once and for all? Well, apart from the fact that you'd probably be vaporised by his holiness, what effect would God appearing like that have? Would people believe in him? Yeah, probably. But what would be the nature of the relationship? If I could say, come on, God, do a miracle, prove you exist, and poof, he suddenly appeared and did what I wanted to prove his existence to me. Well, who would be in control at that point? Who would be at the centre of the universe? Well, it actually wouldn't be God, would it? It'd be me. God would just be like my personal genie that whenever I have any doubts about him, I just kind of rub the lamp and poof, out he pops to grant my wishes. But that's not the kind of God we're talking about. Our God's not a genie in a lamp. He's the creator of the universe. The whole universe points to his existence. What if I came up with some brilliant philosophical proof or some kind of scientific experiment that could show that God exists? What effect would that have? Would it lead me to boast in God? No, I'd just boast in myself. I'd go on lecture tours and tell people about how clever I was. I'd still be the centre of the universe. In the end, the demand that God prove himself through signs or wisdom is a demand that I remain at the centre of the universe. It's a demand that God should orbit around me. It's me saying, no, God, you've got it wrong. I know what's good and evil. Do it my way. But for God to do that would only reinforce the problem. It would only confirm my delusion that everything, including God, revolves around me. So instead, God chooses to use the cross to hide from the proud and the arrogant. But more than that, he uses the cross to demolish our pride and pretensions. See, humans often recognise that we've got problems. You know, there's no end of books that are published about our problems, uh, our difficulty-breaking habits, our economic problems, our political problems, our problems with the way that we relate to our families and our friends and in our marriages and with our boyfriends and girlfriends. And there's millions of books published every year. Books written by intelligent, articulate people. Philosophers, educated, educators, the wise and learned of this world. All pointing out the problems that we have. But here's the thing. They all think they know how to solve them. They all think that if we just take their advice, follow their program 
and most importantly by their book, then suddenly we'll be winning. Suddenly we'll be on top of everything and all our problems will just disappear. And Tuesday I quoted David Foster Wallace from his commencement address at Kenyon College that everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute centre of the universe. I think he's right. I think his speech is well worth reading. And his aim is to open people's eyes to their self-centeredness, their blindness to their own culture that will destroy them. He sees how disgusting it is. He sees how arrogant it is. But... What's his solution? Is it the cross? No. It's, you know, just try to be a bit more aware. Try to be a bit more switched on, a bit more woke about what's going on. It's hard, but you can do it. He thinks that with a bit of encouragement, some careful thought we can make ourselves great again, to paraphrase Donald Trump, or, to be politically sensitive, to quote Barack Obama, yes, we can. But the cross says, no, you can't. If you can save yourself from God's anger through better self-awareness, a sort of practice of meditation or philosophy or intellect or something like that, then God would never have needed to send his son to die for you. We in our arrogance say, yes, we can. But God through the cross says, nah, (laughs) you can't. Have a look at verses 19 and 20 there, chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, God chooses to reveal himself not through wisdom, not through signs and wonders, but through the cross. Except that's not quite what Paul says, is it? If you have a look at verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Now, if you stop and think about it for a moment, that's kind of a weird sentence and almost feels like a non sequitur. It doesn't follow. You'd expect, if the world through its wisdom didn't know God, that God would be pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to make himself known. But it doesn't say that doesn't say God's aim was to make himself known. It says God's aim was to save those who believe. God's aim is not simply to make himself known, as if God's sort of poor old God is over here in the corner going, Yoo-hoo, I'm over here. Please look at me. Look at me. I'm here. As though he's starved for attention or something. No, God's aim is not to make himself known, but to save those who believe. He uses the cross to hide from the proud, to demolish our pride, in order to save those who believe. But it's not just the message of salvation. 
It's those he chooses to save. You can see it there in verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, how many professors do you know who are Christians? Some, but not many. What about CEOs? Maybe some, but not many. What about celebrities, elite athletes, intellectuals? Not many. Why is that? Well, what would happen if God did that? See, it's how we work, isn't it? It's how we operate. We think, man, if we want to get people along to this thing, we're going to have to get a celebrity. You know, who's, who's the most impressive kind of Christian that we've got contact with? You know, who's the, have we got any Eagles stars or any Dockers stars who are Christians? Um, let me see. Have we got any sort of visiting intellectuals who are Christians? What celebrities do we have around? Because that's, that's actually what's going to pull people in. That's what's going to persuade them. But if God sort of just chose to save all the elite athletes, all the top flight intellectuals, all the celebrities, what impression would that give? Well, we'd be inclined to think that God chose them because they were so impressive. That's why we're attracted to them. We're impressed by them. We'd think God was the same. And they'd think that they were doing God a favour by being on his team. Yeah, you know, God needed a little help with his publicity campaign, so here I am, elite athlete, sporting superstar, celebrity, intellectual. But, of course, that's nonsense. God doesn't need them. They need God. We don't need them. We need God. God doesn't need celebrities. He doesn't need the bold and the beautiful to add some shine to his marketing campaign. He's the creator of the entire universe. He doesn't need us to sort of puff him up a bit, to bolster his image. And God refuses to feed our pride. Because after all, that's the source of the problem in the first place. So God deliberately chooses to save the foolish, the weak, the lowly things, the despised things and the things that are not. That's you if you hadn't worked it out. Why does he do that? To shame the wise, to shame the strong, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's not because of us that we're in Christ Jesus. It's because of him. These are the people that God has chosen to save. 
And like Matt said before, these are the messengers that God has chosen to proclaim the message of the cross. God chooses messengers who fit the message. The message of the cross, that we were slaves to sin, facing death and the wrath of God, completely powerless to escape it. That all our wisdom and our strength just didn't amount to a hill of beans. If anything, it only made us dig a deeper hole for ourselves, boasting in ourselves instead of in God. But God, in his great love for us, in spite of our sin and our inability to do anything at all, sent his son to make atonement, to make amends. That Jesus substituted himself for us. He took God's righteous anger at our sin in our place. And by doing that, he's redeemed us from the guilt, the penalty, the shame, the power of sin. We can be justified, declared right with God, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. And because we're no longer under sin, because we're right before God, Satan has been defeated. He's been stripped of his power to rightly accuse us before God. He's got nothing on us anymore. He doesn't like us. But our sin has been paid for. He's got nothing to accuse us of. He's powerless. The serpent has been crushed. We're no longer slaves to sin, death and the devil. Instead, we've been reconciled to God, adopted as his dearly loved children, all who believe in him. And it's all done in a way that demolishes our pride and our arrogance that saves those who believe and shames the wise and the strong. It's a brilliant strategy when you think about it. Genius, given the problem that we were in, given what we were like, and given who God is like. But then you think, well, why not, you know, just add a little bit of razzle-dazzle to it? Can't we add a little bit of sparkle to this thing? Why not just sort of pump up the crowd a bit? You know, bang the lectern. This is why we need a proper lectern, not a music stand. So you can bang it and rev people up. By all means, keep the message of the cross, but let's rev up the medium. Let's pump it up. Let's get the light show going. Let's get the smoke machine up here. Let's get the musos up and get some Holy Spirit music in the background. Come on. You'll be awake. You'll be motivated to listen. Why not keep the message but crank up the medium? Well, why not? Why not preach the gospel like a TED talk? Why not build a super comfortable auditorium where you can create a good vibe, you know, have really good quality coffee, start with a self-deprecating story so that people will come in and they'll like you and, you know, you'll like me and you'll think, wow, what a great guy. He tells self-deprecating stories about himself and, you know, I really feel comfortable here and, you know, you guys, you're really a beautiful bunch of people. Have you, have you noticed that? <laughs> so intelligent. So, wow, I mean, gee, I, look, I've completely lost where I am in the talk. You're so beautiful. Ah, <laughs> oh, beautiful people. 
Why not do that? Well, because in a sense, the medium is the message. So if you preach the message of the cross in a way that's simply designed to keep people entertained, to flatter them, then what they'll do is they'll walk away not believing the message of the cross at all, but the message you've been sending them through everything else. That it's really all about them. That it's about their comfort. That it's about how good they are. And you end up telling people where you think the power really lies. You think that the real power lies in getting the techniques right, in the slickness of your performance. And I think that's what many churches around the world have done, Uh, many in Perth as well for that matter. They've lost confidence in the message of the cross. Some have put their trust in great marketing, If we can just get the visuals right, if we can just work out the demographics properly for our marketing campaign. Others have uh, put their trust in having a really great strategic business model and a high-powered staff team. They hope by having a really loud band and the best possible music that people will come and they'll stick and, and somehow they'll come into God's presence because the music is so great as though people have never been to a rock concert in their lives. Others have put their faith in beautiful traditional liturgy, in robes and incense and all the the bells and the smells of your traditional kind of church. Beautiful architecture, great paintings. Those all bring people to God, surely. Others have chucked out anything that might offend modern sensibilities and reason. They rely on on their own philosophy, on practical wisdom. Others tell people that Jesus will solve all their problems here and now. They think that they'll get people to come to God, or at least they'll get bums on seats. Do you see what all that's doing? Is it centred around Jesus Christ and him crucified? No, it's centred around us and our ideas, our belief that God is wrong and that we know best how to honour him. No, no, God, you don't know what's good and evil. We know what's good and evil. There are a lot of churches like that. But the tragic thing is that they cut themselves off from the only thing that can actually save people. They cut themselves off from the power of God when they cut themselves off from the message of the cross. You see what Paul says in verse 17? For Christ did not send me to baptise but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The power lies in the cross. That is what God has chosen to use. If you're pinning your hopes on your wisdom, your eloquence, the light show, the emotional music, the robes, the incense, your own reason and techniques, well, you may still have crosses painted on your building. You may have them down in the corner of your PowerPoint. You may have them on your funny little hat but you're not actually trusting the cross, are you? 
Now you've emptied the cross of its power. But it is the cross that is the wisdom and power of God. It's the cross that actually works. And if you're a Christian, you know that, don't you? Because what saved you? Were you saved by a brilliant philosophical argument? By an incredibly beautiful speech? A miraculous sign? Well, my guess is no. My guess is that you are probably saved through someone quite ordinary. Someone very normal and fairly unimpressive. It was probably boring old mum, daggy old dad, a pastor that no one's ever heard of, a Sunday school teacher who just wasn't particularly brilliant but turned up faithfully week after week, a friend at school, someone at uni, people who are never going to change the world. Except they did, didn't they? They changed it for eternity. Not by their own brilliance, not by their own wisdom, but because they believed that the message of the cross, the cross, Jesus Christ and him crucified, is the power of God. They believed it, and so they spoke. And God, in his mercy, worked in you so that you believed. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It was the message of the cross that reconciled you to God, wasn't it? It's when you believed that, that you came to know God. That's where the power is. That's what actually works. And here's the thing. It actually works for everyone. Not just for Jews, not just for Gentiles, not just for the intellectuals the people with high IQs. I mean, imagine if the way to be saved was a brilliant philosophical argument. Well, who would be saved? Well, only those who are smart enough to be able to understand it. Remember Tim saying a few years back when we did the cross uh, that he'd been reading about the ontological argument for the existence of God. I don't know if you've ever come across the ontological argument. Some of those of you doing philosophy... Uh, may well have. Uh, It's a brilliant argument. And I remember Tim saying that it's so brilliant, he can't even work out if it's right or not. And I've tried to work it out as well. And I've got even less idea. I can't tell if it's right. I've got no idea. It might be, but it's going to take someone of far more brain power than me to understand it. No, the cross works for all. It's so simple that... The uneducated, that small children, even intellectually disabled people can understand it. They may not get all the ins and outs of it that we've been talking about this week, but they understand that Jesus died for them and that by trusting in him they'll be saved. The cross just demolishes elitism and it opens the gates of heaven to everyone. puts us back in right relationship with God too. Instead of the arrogance of Eden where we said, no God, I know what's good and evil. It humbles us and it forces us to say, you know, I had no idea. I had no idea. I'm sorry, God, you were right and I was wrong. You are good and I'm evil. Your foolishness is wiser than my wisdom 
and your weakness is stronger than my strength. The cross causes us to bow the knee before the king of the universe, even as it lifts us up as sons and daughters of the Most High. And the cross gives us value without pride. You have the misfortune of having grown up in a generation where self-esteem was the thing. That self-esteem was crucial for children to grow up into well-adjusted adults. Now, of course, it's true that children need to be valued, they need to be loved. But parents and teachers have been teaching children that they're so smart, you're so talented, you're so wonderful... You can do whatever you set your minds to. That's a really encouraging kind of thing. You feel great when people say that about you. Wow, I can conquer the world. I can do anything I like. But then there's this thing called reality. (laughs) And sooner or later you hit it. Sooner or later you realise that you're not as smart as people told you. You're not as talented, you're not as wonderful as you were led to believe. That no matter how hard you try, you're never going to be an astronaut. That you're not nearly as impressive as they told you. See, the result of the self-esteem movement has not been well-adjusted adults, but adults who are still children, still self-centred, still immature, still spoiled convinced that they're worth it. Not because of anything that they've done, but simply because people sold this lie to them. Self-centred, immature and spoiled and crushed by their inability to actually achieve anything worthwhile. But the cross reverses that. It doesn't tell us that we're all just such wonderful little cherubs. Now, it tells us that we're rotten to the core because God would never have sent Christ to die if that weren't true. And yet at the same time, he would never have sent Christ to die unless he loved us more than we can possibly imagine. God knows exactly what you're like. He knows you're evil. And yet he loves you all the same. That's why he came to die for you. You are known and yet you are loved. Together we've become worthless and yet we've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. We were sinners condemned to die, but now we are the dearly loved children of God, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. The cross gives us infinite value while destroying the ugliness of our pride. And finally, the cross gives us unity without coercion. Our world is just seems increasingly divided. Greed, racism, sexism, privilege and wealth. Where we're born, who we're born to, we're just divided in so many ways. Plenty of people see that and they long for an end to it. But what starts with noble intentions almost always ends up as an ugly exercise in power that people on the wrong side are demonised, the opposition is crushed, the victims end up becoming the perpetrators. But the cross brings us unity without coercion. It reminds us that other people are not the enemy. 
Our battle's not against flesh and blood. It's against sin and death and the devil. That's what Christ came to deal with. Why are there battles and wars? Why do people starve others? Why do they torture them? Why do they try to destroy them? Why have our politics and our online debates become so toxic? Well, I think it's because people sense that there is evil out there, but they locate it in their enemies. They think that they themselves are pure and that the others out there are evil. And if they could just destroy them, if they could flame them sufficiently hard online, or if they could destroy them physically, that the evil would be erased and we'd be able to enter this whole new beautiful world ruled by them. But our enemies are not other people. Our enemies are sin, death and the devil. And they've already been defeated by Christ on the cross. And one day he will return to destroy them once and for all. It shows us that we're sinners saved by God's grace. It destroys the barriers between us by humbling us all, by causing us all to bow the knee as beggars and then lifting up all who trust in Christ as children of the King. If you come along to my church one day, uh, I say it's my church, I just go there, I don't own it, it's Jesus's. (laughs) But you'll find surgeons sitting alongside long-term unemployed people living in Homes West Housing. You'll find Indigenous people sharing communion with their white invaders. You'll see white Africans praying with black Africans, caring for their children. Not because they're forced to, not because they're shamed into it, but because they want to, because they've been transformed by the forgiveness that has come to them through Christ. They no longer see themselves as superior. They no longer see others as inferior. They see them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Where else do you find anything like that? How do you create something like that? Man, people would give millions. They would give billions if you could create what you see in my funny little church down the road. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And yet I think many of us do lack confidence in the cross. We worry that the message of it doesn't really work. We think that if we're going to reverse the decline of Christianity in Australia, if we're ever going to reach the world for Jesus, then we need something else or something more. We think, man, if only I was smarter, if only I'd I'd studied philosophy at uni, if only I'd done ancient history so I I knew all the historical arguments about Jesus, or if I'd studied science, if only I were a better speaker and I I didn't get tongue-tied in front of people. If I didn't get so anxious when it comes to talking about Jesus, if only I had a more impressive personality, if I was just that that really charming guy, that really lovely girl who everyone just loves to be around, then, then people would come to Christ. 
don't know if you've ever felt like that. I know I do from time to time. But do you see what God's saying here? He's saying that if you believe that, you're wrong. You may think that you know good and evil, but you don't. God does. He knows what's good and evil. He's saying that if you think that wisdom and eloquence and even miraculous signs are where the power of God lies, you're wrong. The power lies in the cross, in the message of the cross. So the right wing thinks, man, if only we had political power, if we could just get enough Christians elected to parliament, then we could, we could pass Christian laws and we could turn Australia into a Christian nation. That's where salvation lies. That's where the power is, politics. The left wing thinks, man, if we only had cultural influence, if we could, if we could produce more beautiful, sort of soulful, Christianish music like Sufjan Stevens and we could write beautiful books like Marilyn Robinson and, you know, that we could pluck at people's heartstrings and sing better folk songs and, you know, then we'd make an impact. That's where the power is. But no, they're both wrong. It's not that philosophy or history or science or literature or music or politics are bad things. They're good things. They're good gifts of God. Praise him for them and praise him for the Christians who are involved in them. But they're not where the power of God is. The power of God lies in the message of the cross. It doesn't lie in impressive people. If God needed impressive people... He wouldn't have chosen you. (laughs) Sorry to be rude, but he wouldn't have chosen me either. If God needed someone who could steamroll philosophy lecturers, he wouldn't have chosen you or me. If he needed really beautiful people, he wouldn't have chosen you. (laughs) But, you know... (laughs) If he needed gripping, articulate wordsmiths, he wouldn't have chosen us. But in fact, he doesn't need any of that. In fact, he chose you and me precisely because we are so unimpressive. He chose us so that no one can boast before him. He chose us so that the focus would not be on us, but on his son. So that the one who boasts would not boast in themselves, but in the Lord. You don't need to be the head of the philosophy department. You don't need to be eloquent and stylish. You just need to trust God. Believe him when he says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us being saved, it is the power of God. The message of the cross through unimpressive people saved you if you've put your trust in it. And God will use the message of the cross through you and me, unimpressive as we are, to save others. Because it's the only thing that saves anyone. Because it pays for our sin, it undermines our arrogance, and it causes the one who boasts to boast in the Lord. So do you believe it? And will you do it? Will you commit yourself to proclaiming the message of the cross? See, God has put you and me here 
at our various universities in the middle of thousands of students and staff who don't know their right hand from their left. He's plonked us in the middle of a nation where many people don't even know a Christian. And even fewer have ever heard the gospel explained clearly. Where people don't know that the cross is the climax of God's entire plan to save the world. In the middle of a world where billions don't know Jesus, where hundreds of millions have never even heard of him. And yet he's given us the message of the cross. He's chosen us to be his messengers. So what are you going to do? I think you're going to have to get, get out there and do it, aren't you? If you're not sure that you know the message of the cross clearly enough, well, you'd better get equipped to do it. And I think if you've been here for this week, you're better equipped than most of the population. You're probably better equipped than many of the people in your own churches. Get equipped. Start doing it. Start sharing the gospel. If you don't have the confidence to do it, start praying that God would give you that confidence. Pray that God would give you opportunities to bring the message of the cross to people. Yeah, I mean, at uni, in society, in the world, we have very small fish, very small fish in a very big pond. Not many of us are wise by human standards. Not many are influential. And I'm pretty sure none of you are of noble birth. But in our weakness and foolishness, God saved us. And in our weakness and foolishness, God uses us to bring the offer of salvation of all. salvation to all. We don't need tricks or techniques. We don't need glitz or glamour. We don't need money or power. Because in the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, we have everything we need. The Holy Spirit is not hamstrung by your weakness, as if he's thinking, man, if only they were a little bit better, then I could do something with this. No, no. He uses our weakness, just as he used the weakness and the foolishness of a naked, helpless man, nailed to a cross, ridiculed by the crowds, gasping his last breath to save the world. Do you believe it? Will you do it? Let's pray. Father God, please give us confidence in the cross. Amen.